0: Hello, and welcome to episode 53 of Girls Gone Canon, John 2 and John 3 in a Clash of Kings. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as Lies and Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and at LiesandArborGold.com. And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana, and you might know me as Glass Table
1: Girl on the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit or on the Maester Monthly podcast. Maybe you know me as Arithmetric over on Twitter. Welcome,
0: you know, along with getting back to the good old well I don't know i I was looking for some my whole goal was like we were gonna start this episode and then just crank back in black from a c d c right burn out, burn out someone Brow. did that burn out. John's back in black! Did you see that someone did that? They, uh,
1: Lauren, aka Shakespeare no. of Thrones, was like, how come someone didn't do back in black uh, for the end of John's storyline in the Game of Thrones television show, and then someone made it happen for her? Or <laughs> they superimposed it?
0: Well, let's also be real that like it's all been thought of. Nothing's original anymore. There's millions of us. That's
1: true. But it exists. We'll. I'll find the link. It exists, I'll find though,
0: the yes. link. We'll put it in there we'll for find this one. episode. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. We're back in black. We uh. We've got really fun stuff this summer yes. coming up. Uh, I know we're back to the basics with our Jon Snow chapters in a Clash of Kings, but we wanted to kind of spice it up a little bit. So we are going to be starting a new series. Uh, A new book series Mm -hmm. soon. We're going to be covering it. It won't be as regular as our Song of Ice and Fire episodes. That will be coming in July. We plan on fully announcing it in the next week. So stay tuned for that. After this episode, probably in episode fifty-four.
1: Yes, we're gonna drop that news very soon as we iron out, you know, what the format's going to be, how we're gonna do this, but we are very excited to do this. I mean, like, we are all looking for what else will fill the whole of our lives with uh, Game of Thrones being done. I mean, I still have the books, so I'm fine. I th- I, I, I'm i over here cradling my copy of, like, A Feast for Crows.
0: And, uh, every yeah. night. How do you think I sleep? You know how some people use pillows between their, like, knees mm-hmm. to keep their legs upright when they sleep? Yeah. Oh! That's me with my wow. books, All my five Song of, of Ice them. and Fire books. You Your know? thighs
1: must be so strong and so <laughs> even. So we we also got some emails and tweets of note as we start coming back into these John, uh, these John chapters. So. From Lady Mari of House Rickman, we get, Hi there! First of all, I love your podcast. Thank you. I feel like I'm getting a college literary analysis course in my ears every day, soon to be every week since I'm almost caught up. And yes, soon to be every week because we are coming back to doing these weekly and regularly. Your thoughts on Craven Sam actually being the bravest reminded me of the self-proclaimed cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz. A hundred years ago, when I read bedtime stories to my now college-aged children, I read that book to them and thought it was so great that the Cowardly Lion was the bravest, the Scarecrow was the smartest, and the Tin Man was the most empathetic. If you have small children to read to, The Wizard of Oz has some great parallels for Song of Ice and Fire characters. Looking forward to more John, Lady Mary of House Rickman, who in fact also sent Girls Gun Cannon an incredible... Arya doodle a while ago.
0: Speaking of like great things. Yeah, and it's not just Arya. It's Arya and Lil oh, Pigeon. It, it is, is <laughs> That's the most right. important part. It is Arya and Lil yes. Pigeon. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh. God, I love that art. I do. No, it's a great doodle. We'll have to post it up if uh, Lady Mary is okay with that. Yes. We'll send her a message and find out because it is the best it's art. So it's like, cute. is it is this Girl's Scout <laughs> canon fan art now? I think so. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. Is that our next step? Who needs iTunes reviews? Send us fan art.
1: Yeah, that would actually bring me way more joy than. Draw Chloe as a bird. iTunes <laughs> reviews. No, not. The no, <laughs> iTunes reviews also bring us uh, great joy. Oh, yeah, I get both. Except for when they don't and bring us great um, sadness and frustration. But they also help people know that we exist, in theory, but. But I kind of like the fan art it. <laughs> but little pigeon, pigeon fan, art. <laughs> and of course again, um, Drafter G, who is also a fantastic artist, released their print shop, and they have a strong Bella's print up that was inspired, uh, allegedly by us. So it's really good,
0: it. and I have mine on the way. So oh, good. I actually just became a patron of Naomi Makes Art. Mm. She's also really great. Yeah. Yeah. I love her work. Literally today I got home from work and there was a notification on her page and there was a sketch of a character that I love very much that many people do not draw or do not talk about or care about except for just me in this world. So I can't. Obviously you should sign up for Patreon if you want to know. But she has purple eyes. I digress. I love that Lady Mary of House Rickman brought up Sam as kind of the cowardly lion in Wizard of Oz. And there's this one line I love in The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. You have plenty of courage, I am sure, answered Oz. All you need is confidence in yourself. There is no living thing that is not afraid when it faces danger. The true courage is in facing danger when you are afraid and that kind of courage you have in plenty. Yes. I thought that was a really nice passage. I think it really, uh, it, it highlights a lot about Sam and John's journey throughout the Song of Ice and Fire story. They both have to face these very different times of bravery, but both of their braveries are not, like, they, none, neither of them are small. They're both very big braveries. Yeah, and
1: I think that there's a lot of, in this line that you've chosen that echoes exactly what ned is always telling his children right the true courage isn't facing danger when you are afraid and it kind of really drives home how much of the beginning chapters of a song of ice and fire especially with all these young characters is a coming of age story right because like the wonderful wizard of oz isn't just i think a children's story a lot of children's books have or young adult books have a lot of appeal for people in older audiences. That's why people are still always revisiting Harry Potter. And I think that you can see that this is a lesson that is carried through the ages for
0: all ages. The Tin Man, the Mm. Lion, the Scarecrow. Yes, they say they were always like this, but at one point they likely weren't just what they are. They became this way. They went back this way. It's kind of like that whole idea in adulthood of, Losing your mm. way and finding your way back on the path. And I think there's a lot of that in this story for the adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see some people like Jamie struggle yes. with that. We see people like Theon struggle with that. And we even see Jon struggle with which road is the uh, path more followed or the path that he should follow more.
1: And will, of course, be... Touching on those ideas, we touched on them, as you said, in Theon's storyline, but what it means to get back to those lessons and those values as we explore other characters. And of course, in Jon, we're going to be exploring this idea of courage throughout these chapters. And I mean, it's it's ever present in Jon's storyline, especially when he's in conjunction with Sam. In these first few books where you know Sam's storyline is wrapped up in John's. And so with that, let's jump into our lightning round to get into these John chapters.
0: Yeah, what we've missed between John 1 and John 2 in a Clash of Kings. Catelyn 1. Rob presents peace terms to Sir Cleos Frey, and Catalan later argues with him over Jamie Lannister and Theon Greyjoy. She and the blackfish plan an alliance with King Renly Baratheon. Bah, bah,
1: bah. Tyrion 2. Tyrion requests dinner with Jano Slint, but he has an ulterior motive. He has Slint captured and forced to join the Night's Watch, then discusses affairs with Varys.
0: Arya 3. Off the King's Road, Arya runs into a pack of wolves.
1: Davos 1, skeptical of Stannis' new titles, Davos watches the Seven Burn before working with Stannis to plan taking
0: the throne. Theon 1, Theon attempts to broker an alliance between his father and Rob, but ends up reigniting the good old Greyjoy rebellion flame.
1: Daenerys 1, Dany leads her khalasar through the Red Waste, losing members as they go. She sends her blood riders scouting and they come back to tell her of
0: the promise of Carth. This leads us into John Two. John's ranging has turned up nothing but empty wilding villages. J.R. Mormont has him and Sam send their findings to Castle Black and discusses Benjen Stark with John.
1: And so that opens with John Two, where John does not think much of White Tree, which is apparently a small wilding village, but he does think that this weirwood is the biggest that he's ever seen and has the strangest most unsettling face carved into it and my commentary is i really like this big tree
0: (laughs) i like that it paints this picture of him being far from home Uh right uh you think of winterfell as the north but this is the true north these trees are huge and unsettling and these people are unsettling to john and I do love that in the beginning of Clash, he starts thinking the wildlings and who they are and where they live are small and that they, you know, don't really have value. But by the end of A Clash of Kings, he has conflicting thoughts of leaving them, right? He doesn't even want to leave these people. He really comes to understand the free folk and understand and treat them as humans.
1: Yeah, he starts to embrace that, you know, the freedom that they have and not necessarily valuing these sorts of dwellings, but yeah, this tree—it's the
0: only time he's ever had to not make choices. It's true. Well,
1: until he—he he, he struggled with the choice internally and when he would have to do it. But yeah, um, yeah it's the ultimate rainforest cafe tree, and I'm still on this um, regarding oh the tree, God. though the characters actually have things to say about it, such as an old tree. Mormont sat his horse, frowning old his raven
0: agreed from his shoulder old 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 and powerful john could feel the power <laughs> and so john recalls ned stark telling
1: him of a time like that the old gods they could actually sense when you are lying through the weirwoods and john uh brings the dead burnt wildling skulls that are inside the tree's mouth to J.R. Mormont for examination. And I do think it's interesting that at the beginning of this chapter, John thinks on how the face of the tree is large enough to swallow a sheep, but what's inside, he says, are not sheep bones. And it's later on in this entire story, the whole Song of Ice and Fire, but it kind of reminds me of Daenerys looking at the bones that the shepherd has brought her and Marine and realizing that those are not the bones of a sheep but of a child mm.
0: that's interesting especially considering the dragons and the old gods you yeah know, they just are this power this force this magic and what it
1: asks of you right like what is it seems as though there's definitely blood sacrifice as part of the ritual of maybe activating or being or or anything to do with a weirwood tree they're not
0: just cool plants is almost like a joke that George is kind of poking at us, like that you can't lie in front of the gods, but it's just like you know, George Washington could not tell a lie. Oh, that's funny. The cherry tree and the shit and the thing. Yeah, obviously not real stories. Yeah, but I
1: mean it's, it's kind of funny because I think what it was meant to be is kind of lost throughout the ages because I don't think it's that you can't tell a lie, a lie in front of the heart tree or in front of the weirwood. It's that whoever's in it can see the things and knows that you're full yeah, of shit absolutely. but but it's translated yeah, into this little like
0: colloquialism over time you
1: yourself are suddenly like something comes over you and you're forced to tell the truth
0: like in liar yeah. liar it's like a thing we tell kids <laughs> it's yeah you like santa you're
1: you're jim carrey in liar liar i'm jim carrey and- <laughs> you
0: cannot lie anymore uh John thinks of the dead rising while J-Or monologues about what it would be like to live in their dead, bony shoes. And John pilfers through a wildling's abandoned home with none other than Ed. Bad enough when the dead come walkin', he said to John as they crossed the village. "'Now the old bear wants them talking as well? No good will come of that,' I'll warrant. "'And who's to say the bones wouldn't lie? Why should death make a man truthful or even clever?' The dead are likely dull fellows full of tedious complaints. The ground's too cold. My gravestone should be larger. Why does he get more worms than I do? There's a
1: couple of things in this quote that kind of give me pause, such as, you know, this whole, like, who's to say the bones wouldn't lie? I don't think that George has actually planned this out this far ahead. Even though we do get our first sighting of faceless men in this book being faceless men and doing faceless men things. I don't (laughs) think that he's planned it out, but it does remind me of Rattleshirt, that line. Mm. But the other is also whether we should see it as pointing to John's eventual death and resurrection, because I think that one is Likely within George's, yeah, his garden. He's he's had a goal in there. He was trying to make that fruit happen. And like, he stated many times that death ought to change a person. George has, and that's something that he wants to react to within Lord of the Rings. So why should death make a man truthful or or clever, as Ed asks? And if it doesn't make them truthful or clever, what does death make a man? And we're going to find out with John.
0: Yeah, and it's also heavily shadowed in Arya's plot with Barrett, mm-hmm. for example. Later on, uh, it's also very much so seen with John in this book. Later on, with Corin Halfhand. Yes. John thinks that this place is a total roach motel, <laughs> and Dolores Ed is like, "This is all some people get homey. At least they have a bed." They both are kind of sniffing around, and they smell dung. They smell poop. And they investigate it. It's old poop, though. Uh, Just so you know. This place has been abandoned for a while. John shows this kind of surprise at Ed saying, you know, I've stayed in worse places than this. He's still learning to be thankful, right, for his upbringing. And he's still kind of saying things that are like, John, like, what do you expect? They made all of this. This is all they had because this is what their capabilities were. But he does show aptitude in shutting his mouth and listening. To what Dolores Ed says instead of charging ahead with, like, his, oh, like, this place is garbage and they could have done this instead, you know, without listening. He just, like, lets Dolores Ed say some stuff. He's like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, also
1: like, what happened to your house, Ed? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs>
0: Did you, like, there's a whole... Ho- there's a whole toilet house anyways. <laughs> he is house toilet, but he wasn't saying like where he grew yeah. up. He was saying, you know, that he's been in horrible places before the Night's Watch, which makes me wonder if like, you know, he was kind of a burnout as a kid. Aw. Right? Did a little too much of the shade of the evening. Yep. Yeah, too much, uh. Parents kicked him out of the house.
1: Too much Sour Leaf. <laughs> too, I mean, Sour Leaf, I don't know. You can have Sour Leaf and have a perfect, be an entrepreneur as Masha Heddle shows. As I show. Yeah, true. All right. (laughs) Then we also have Thorin Smallwood, who has now decided to wear Jeremy Riker's clasped cloak, breastplate, and mail. And he says that the Wildlings were at White Tree only a year ago. His uh, wearing of the cloak shows that the Night's Watch wastes nothing.
0: Yeah, not only is Jeremy wearing Riker's clothing, but by putting it on, he kind of becomes the next Riker. He meets a similar end as Jeremy. He dies in the fight at the fist in the end of Storm of Swords. So by wearing that outfit, he kind of dooms himself to that fate. I wonder if there's
1: like a thing about people who are wearing really nice things because when I was reading this description of Thorin Smallwood's clothing and what was thus Jeremy Riker's clothing, it sounded almost like how nicely dressed Waymar Royce was at the beginning of yeah, the game. absolutely, and. I I don't know. Do the others just hate fashion?
0: I mean, in the show, they hate that Jon Snow gets to be with his boyfriend Sam south of the wall, and they don't get to. So I understand. <laughs> what? That's it, right? That was the whole so, reason. That's why they right? came
1: south, and and the Night King was like, mm, "I'm going to kill Ed." I'm going. That's why he was going after Sam so hard. That's why we had all that focus. Yeah. And that one. I know. Episode. And yeah. John. Uh, that's what it thing. was about.
0: He just wanted to be happy with his five boyfriends or four boyfriends or however many boyfriends he mm-hmm. had at the end. They were like 12, I think. I don't know. So <laughs> the boys of the Night's Watch, though, want to make camp. is like, we're going to go north. We're going to scout the next area and then we can like fish the lake. But we don't have much time. He's like paying attention to it being cold out, yada yada. <laughs> Jayor asks Jon to fetch him writing utensils so he can send a raven to Maester Aemon about the abandoned villages.
1: And we get a sense that Jager has been sending these messages back to Maester Aemon periodically throughout the this voyage. And not only is it to ensure that everyone at the wall knows like what's happening, and hey, this is where we're at. We haven't found Benjamin yet. Whoops. Um, and for keeping tabs. But it's also I get a sense of like what Sam was saying before they went out on the ranging. Like, hey, all of these details might be on. Un- Of importance to people later on so that they know where things are like what places are populated what aren't if they were to ever also go north of the wall
0: yeah people don't give that as much credit as it deserves in my opinion uh that is one thing like yes george doesn't always pay attention to like miles littlefinger's jetpack the big joke about the show that he just goes all over yes that's true but George doesn't really pay attention to that either. You know, you have to kind of thematically figure out what happens when, in a chronological order... Yeah, I
1: mean, like, Catelyn makes it, what, from... In book one, she goes from Winterfell to King's Landing to the Vale to the
0: Riverlands, like... Yeah, it's it's a problem with just writing and world-building in general. Sometimes that's how life goes.
1: Yeah, it's uh, fun.
0: It's fun. I do love the exposition here. <laughs> of how they ride. By day, they take the ranger's road, which it's kind of a play on the king's road, right? Everything north of the wall has been jokingly inverted almost. The ranger's road. Uh, the king's road is paved and beautiful and leads you to a fancy castle full of maids and knights and yada yada and dancing and happiness. And then there's the Ranger's Road. It's a road to icy hell where blue eyed zombies live in horrible, horrible freezing conditions. I think this is going to come into play a little more in the next chapter, some of these parallels, so we'll talk about it then. But after they take the Ranger's Road, you get by night, they camp beneath a starry sky and gazed up at the comet. Mm-hmm. A Clash of Kings has been keeping this rhythm this just slow rhythm in the background of the comet streaking the sky in the background of all of our main characters and our pov's stories it kind of lays over every single event in the sky
1: i don't know if this is like in my head and i've glazed over anything about it but it i kind of feel like i don't see anyone in the night's watch claim that the red comet means anything mm-hmm. or it's their herald or 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 it means like a sign of anything and i think that very much goes to show you their practicality and humility Within their order.
0: the You know, the whole watch takes no heraldry, yeah. you know, they are no one. Yeah. Which, of course, all the Stark kids are in positions right now where they're stripping themselves of their claim, even Rickon to an extent in Skagos. Yeah. So interesting that it doesn't mean anything really in the end to any of them.
1: Yeah, a- except for George, who has joked that, you know, if he ever struggles with ending the series, he's like, well, I still have that red comet. <laughs> it
0: means the world. Blow
1: shit up, George, yep. What does one bastard comet mean? <laughs> the <laughs> end. Kingdom. Becomes Armageddon. Isn't that the story of Armageddon in a way? Anyway. Yeah, it's okay. What is one astronaut life? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So the tensions are growing and people are worried about the abandoned wildling villages, because not only have the people fled, also the animals seem to have fled as well. The haunted forest had never seemed more haunted. Even veteran rangers agreed. That's how you
0: know it's spooky and Spooky
1: <laughs> Spooky <scary. It's> <laughs> as he rode. John peeled off his glove to air his burned fingers ugly things. He remembered suddenly how he used to muss Aria's hair, his little stick of a sister. He wondered how she was faring, and made him a little sad to think that he might never muss her hair again. He began to flex his hand, opening and closing the fingers. If he let his sword hand stiffen and grow clumsy, it well might be the end of him, he knew. A man needed his sword
0: beyond the wall. John's personal tick in A Song of Ice and Fire becomes his flexing of his hand, post-injury, uh, just like, you know, Jamie's and Moonboy for all I know, and Tyrion's thrumming of the crossbow, and John Connington's tolling of the bells, when John even gets that letter from Ramsay Snow, or Ramsay Bolton, we should say, sorry, all respect, he gets that nice pink letter, he flexes it angrily, right? And it just is this, like, rhythm in his plot, this, uh, flexes his hand, flexes his hand, he's always flexing his hand. And I also love that it ties in with Catelyn as well, mm. after she defended Bran from the cat spa, their injuries are very parallel and they both are having an interesting, uh, interesting plot moments right now, both kind of going to a place they don't want to have to go to beg for help from someone they don't want to beg from.
1: Yes, that's a great parallel between John and Cat. It really goes to show you why people after the first book had uh, those theories that John and Cat were, were going to beg <laughs> <laughs> that that is not made up. People came up with those theories. Everything exists. I know on the internet. Anyways, John then gives the messages for Maester Aemon to Samwell, telling him of the villages. And then Sam tells John that he isn't really scared. Uh, he holds out his non-shaking hand to prove it, and he says that he's craven but not stupid. And it's sort of an echo to the first time we meet Sam in A Game of Thrones, uh, when John asks if Sam has seen the Wall. John thinks it's kind of funny because of all the people. Going on this ranging, he's like, "Who would have expected Sam, the self-professed coward, to becoming more to be the one becoming more comfortable and less afraid?"
0: Yeah, absolutely. He's very impressed by yeah. it, You know, he uh, he tells him, "We can make a ranger out of you." Yeah, and Sam's like, "Oh <laughs> he's God!" He's no. like, mm,
1: <laughs> "Don't you dare!" I was like, "Oh, how, Sam," also saying, "How dare you?"
0: <laughs> yeah, Sam's really disappointed. He wanted to sleep under a roof in the village. That was kind of his little. His whimsical, oh, that's what I wanted, was, you know, sleeping under a roof. Uh, But he and John both know they have to keep moving. Uh, The commander says so, and John especially knows that they have to keep moving. Otherwise, the things in the night come. Back riding at a white tree, Ghost shows up, (laughs) our good boy. Our very good boy. (laughs) But he shows up hungry, empty-mouthed. He gets no food. No one gets to eat fresh game tonight all the game has been spooked and is gone. John uh, tells the rest of the men the game must be frightened by their large party. I think he's trying to convince himself, moreover. And Dwyan, of course, doesn't buy that. He says more like they're frightened by something.
1: We know Dwyan. Okay. So the Lord Commander and John ride near each other as
0: they head towards, I don't know where the fishes are. They rode in silence until John said, if my uncle's Found all these villages empty as well.
1: He would have made it his purpose to learn why. Lord Mormont finished for him, and it may well be someone or something. Did not want that known. Well, well, we'll be 300 when Corrin joins us. Whatever enemy waits out here will not find us so easy to deal with. We will
0: find them, John, I promise you. Or they will find us, thought John. Poor Jor Mormont, he is... Chasing something out of his duty that and he's not gonna find them,
1: well, the others do find j r and also j r. mormont making a promise I, I it doesn't mean anything, but I just I'm like, ooh promises
0: and john promise i promise you promise promise you. Promise, promise me j yeah. promise me j r okay, well, and that's what makes the next chapter so hard because j r really has become. Such a father figure that John respects, and now John is like, okay, yeah, he is grooming me to be like him. Uh, but as we learn, the Night's Watch, while they don't take sides and they don't take part, they don't take part.
1: <laughs> they really just don't take part. They do what they can yeah. for their purpose. And
0: at what point does it become complicity? Well, we will talk about that mm-hmm. soon. But first, Eliana, are we going to see Benjen ever again? Don't be pedantic. That's not Benjamin. So, in A Dance with Dragon and Brian's Vision? Oh, that. Oh. I thought we were talking about Cold Hands. It was like Cold
1: Hands isn't Benjamin. Oh, yeah, no. That's
0: George not said. Okay.
1: So, first of all, in the show, right, uh Benjamin does end up being a Cold Hands like figure. But in the books, re- dear readers and listeners, User underscore Honeybird on Reddit went to visit the Cushing Library at Texas I think A and M University where they have the manuscript of A Dance with Dragons, and you can see some of the editor's notes as well as George R. Martin's own notes in response. And the editor asks, "Of Cold Hands, is this Benjen?" And George writes, "No." So Cold Hands, not Benjen in the
0: books. Okay, but. That's not my question. Yes,
1: I, I do think we are going to see Benjin again. Um, I thought it was said, I couldn't quote it for you, I couldn't cite the source for you, that George had said somewhere that we will learn about what happened to Benjin. Uh,
0: what if he doesn't give us Benjen, though, and it's just like he was dead or something? What if he's just a white? I mean, then we still lo- I guess we still be know better. what
1: happened to Benjamin then.
0: Huh? Yeah, that's true. There has to be some sort of closure there. I, I hope we do get some closure. Yeah. It's too big of a mystery. Right. Well, for now, I guess the most closure we're gonna get is to move on to our lightning round between John. I mean, two isn't that what closure three.
1: really is in a sense, just learning to move on moving yeah. on, yeah. 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 it's Closure is just moving on. <laughs> you learned it from here first, but not really. Hopefully you've already learned that in your <laughs> life. Lessons, everyone. In your own coming-of-age story. So, lightning round. What we missed. Arya, four. On the shores of the God's Eye, Lannister men, led by Amory Lorch, arrive and fight Yorin's group. Yorin orders Arya to get the other Zad, and she saves three trapped criminals as well. Tyrion,
0: three. The small council plans to quash Stannis' rumor mill with their own trash talk. Tyrion leaves to commission a very large project with the blacksmiths of the city, and later meets with Varys in a brothel.
1: Brand II. The harvest feast has kicked off, and Lady Hornwood voices her concerns of the bastard of the dreadfort, Same. Clay Kerwin arrives, bringing news of Cersei's incest,
0: and Bran later dreams of a golden man who throws him out of the broken tower. Tyrion four, Mistrusting his fellow counselors, Tyrion lays a scheme to each Pycelle, Varys, and Baelish. He learns where their true loyalties lie. Sansa II
1: Sansa seeks the author of a secret note in the godswood, one that promises to whisk her away from the castle. But alas, Dantos is no true knight. She meets Sandra Clegane on her way back to her chambers.
0: Arya five. Arya reveals her identity, Gendry, and both are separately captured by the mountain's men. Lami is killed. Lamy. What the fuck, Salami? <laughs> salami? Uh yeah. you know when the hound's like, what the fuck salami? Yeah. Yes, I remember this. If you just move the S yes. over, it's what the fuck Salami? Why well,
1: that should be another That should be another thing we say all the time. I've decided, what the fuck, Salami? <laughs>
0: Dude, I hope you join in on it with me because I say it and everybody just looks at me and they're like, well.
1: We should have salami sandwiches too. <sighs> What's the fuck? Sandor, Sandor sandwiches. sandwiches. I, I call them salames because oh sometimes they're spelled. Okay, anyways. Tyrion 5. Tyrion discusses a production run with the local alchemist and faces Cersei's wrath about his scheming. Brand 3. Brand plays Lord in
0: Winterfell and he welcomes the representatives from House Reed, Mira, and Jojin. He dreams through summer's eyes, in the gods would. Catelyn
1: too. Catelyn journeys to Bitterbridge to treat with King Renly Baratheon, who insists that Rob must bend the knee. A messenger arrives Ew. with news of King Stannis
0: Baratheon sieging the Storm's End. I can't understand people that fight between Stannis and Renly when it's like Rob is right there. I know.
1: Northern Northern independence. Bad kings.
0: Northern independence. (laughs) That's all I care about. (sighs) So in John 3, another thing I care about, John chapters apparently. (laughs) The ranging finally finds something. People at Craster's Keep. Craster is a dark, cold man. He has always been an ally-ish to the Watch, but John discovers a terrible and foreboding secret about the man that, you know, everyone else knows. And even worse, the men that he looks up to knew about it all. But all men, even gross, awful ones, have some sort of worth, which John discovers as well. And so the Great Ranging
1: forges deeper into the woods. Along with crossing a stream, it's actually been raining very, very hard for like six days. And in the discomfort of adventure, John longs for the warm fires and food of the wall.
0: So I mentioned last chapter, this is very much the nega-king's road, right? The kings road. It's like, it is. It's a it's a megaverse version. And we're seeing a similar one in A Game of Thrones 9, right? With Catelyn going to the twins. We just left this chapter a little bit ago in A Game of Thrones. And it, it's right down to that food to ensure safety that we're going to hear about later when Jon declines Craster's food. And Jor has this faith that Craster's going to do the right thing. Or uphold their end of the Night's Watch's societal deal with them. There's also this idea that Eliana keeps throwing around lately of what the cost is, right? It's uh, a, how high is the cost for what your character wants to accomplish? And is it, and is the cost too much? Well, of course there's a cost to doing business, and many people turn a blind eye, including Catalan and Jayor, to how Craster and Walder do business. So many parallels, they both play very similar roles in these plots, and the rain coming down is very much a Storm of Swords Catalan chapters on the way to the twins. Yes, I'm really liking all of these
1: parallels that you've been bringing up with, with these two characters who seem very much at odds. And along with all of that, the way that this chapter starts kind of reminds me of Quentin's adventures, of course, like the way his chapters start with adventure, Stink, referring to the ship, but also, of course, the meta idea of adventure, because John's adventure is actually very much still at the beginning. Unlike Quentin's, which is, like, in the middle. But John can already see that this isn't all it's cracked up to be. He wants to be back at his warm hearth. Uh, He hasn't lost any of his friends yet. And he continues to go forward into the cold, realizing that, turns out, adventure
0: does smell like mold and poop. And it's, like, a lot of poop. And it's also cold. Well, there's a lot to argue there, too, that John's adventure does end in death, obviously, from his choices at the end of A Dance with Dragons. But... John, as we speculate, since it's not out in the books yet, um, John gets to come back, Mm -hmm. right? And Quentin does not get to come back. In the end, Quentin was not the hero, but John is the hero and John gets to come back.
1: Yeah, so there's a little bit of that sense of luck and unfairness, which I think is something Mm -hmm. that George is exploring in these books as well. The horn sounds, letting the column know that, hey, turns out Craster is still here, we did it, good job team. His place offers a promise of counsel and reprieve. So long as he gives us a hot meal and a chance to dry our clothes, I'll be happy. Dywin said Craster was a kinslayer, liar, raper, and craven, and hinted that he trafficked with slavers and demons. And worse, the old forester would add, clacking his wooden teeth there's a cold smell to that one there is
0: it definitely reminds me this whole chapter reminds me of Catelyn 6 in a storm of swords right with Rob and Catelyn when Rob says he's more wet than hungry and she begs Rob once you've eaten his bread and salt you have the guest right Mm -hmm. you can stay beneath his roof and you'll be protected and Rob says if it please Lord Walder to serve me stewed crow smothered in maggots I'll eat it and ask for a second bowl Lots of similar imagery, that gross, death-like, just gray. Everything feels very gray. Yeah, and
1: that these two really kind of disgusting men are the keepers of in a way the gates when it comes to the north, and the
0: gates of the south. Yeah, absolutely. And you, of course, have to pay a toll to pass through those bridges. Uh, The toll is a lot cheaper, I think, for
1: Craster. If you other than you know your morality but
0: yup keep uh keep your mouth shut and don't tell keep the secret and uh we're good here homie that's pretty much what it is homie ish except every single year it gets more and more strained <laughs> yes none of the men there are allowed to interact with Craster's wives as much as possible because yes Craster the very sexy, sexy, charismatic oh. man has many wives wow. <laughs> that he's made himself. Tell
1: me more about what you think about Craster, Chloe. <laughs> nope.
0: Not gonna do that. Uh, you may go on.
1: John then meets up with Sam and says that he looks forward to staying by Craster's fire. Sam looked dubious. Dolorous, Ed, says Craster is a terrible savage. He marries his daughters and obeys no laws but those he makes himself. And Dywin told Gren he's got black blood in his veins. His mother was a wildling woman who lay with a ranger, so he's a bastard. Suddenly, he realized what he was about to say. A bastard, John said with a laugh. You can say it Sam. I've
0: heard the word
1: before. Oh, Th- that word doesn't hurt him anymore, right? He's going to be made fun of for being a bastard later on by some assholes. But John's learned to accept who he is and now people can't use it against Sam Partier and Lannister's advice. But also this chapter slowly builds the horror that is Craster, as terrifying as the Whites are. I think Craster might be his own kind of monster. Like, what's awful is that he also isn't a monster. That's what's so terrible.
0: Yeah, he's just a man. And he's a man that was capable of doing terrible garbage things like this. That's the thing, though, is at the same time, Craster was never going to change, right? He has upkept a deal with the devil that has been passed down for his generations, basically. And what would happen if he didn't? He'd be kneeling to someone, right? That's his thing. He doesn't want to set aside his pride or his independence to kneel to any of these kings or to kneel to the Night's Watch for protection. And yes, what he's doing is absolutely garbage and gross, but he he is part of a system that has spun out of control dictated by the others and he can't really set aside all that to break the cycle at this point it's too far gone
1: yeah he sold his own soul and a bunch of other souls i guess that's that's the price that he's paying that's
0: his cost, his humanity yes.
1: in not just in terms of his soul but like that morality John carries a message to the rest of the Rangers that, hey, we're staying here tonight and don't touch any of Craster's wives, okay? And so John then cuts through a nature path. It's really nice <laughs> and pretty, and you should go read it. John then calls for ghosts because he thinks that he's here rustling, but turns out it's Dywin, lol, also grin. There's some pretty funny cute banter. Dywin has wooden teeth. He's a pretty funny dude too. After some small talk about how Craster quote-unquote breeds his own wives, Ghost finally actually
0: appears. Craster's keep is nothing what John imagined it would be, and his thoughts of what the castle would have been were already pretty modest. This is a small compound. It has a gate that's flanked by a bear and a ram skull, because that's not Uh, (laughs) heavy-handed. When John returns, the women have been preparing a pig for slaughter, and Chet's hounds and Craster's dogs snap at each other, but all cower when ghost appears. I will say that
1: John, thinking of how Craster's keep is not a castle, reminds me of, mm-hmm. yeah, a, a, yeah, Secret. just because you know we decided we were going to cry in this moment. <laughs> oh, uh, is this a true castle? Is this a real. You were castle? so basic back then, too, John. Well, Fuck you. <laughs> uh, anyway. Many of the men will have to sleep outside of, like, the 200 that are here at the moment because they haven't met up with Kords men yet. Only 30 to 50 may actually be able to fit and sleep indoors. Uh, Much like uh, the wedding at the Oh, twins. yeah, it's true. Uh, Dolorous Ed uh, doesn't want to sleep indoors because he distrusts Craster, and also he's like, it smells funny.
0: Smells like incest. And poop. Incest poop.
1: It's literally incest oh. poop when you think about it, and all of it is know. yes, uh, more than than not. True, true. Except for the aminal poop, then we me- probably incest too. Maybe I mean, Gilly's Gilly's left, talking so. about breeding these rabbits, so. Yeah. Dolor, its like when you make Pokemon. Anyways, Dolor's ad tells John that Jr Mormont wants to go see him. Wants him to wants John to see him in the hall. And inside, oh, <laughs> you in trouble. Inside the hall, in it's smoky and dirty and stinky. And John thinks that this is supposed to be one of the wonders beyond the wall. And when they're in the hall. Out of everyone who's sitting on a bench, only Craster has his own chair. I like that Mormont still has his raven on his shoulder here. We're going to come back to this raven in a moment, because he and the burb
0: are one. It's kind of sweet to think that Bloodraven is watching out for uh, his his future Hogwarts professor uh, headmaster, you know? Yeah. I, it's... That he's like still watching out for these guys. Do he and GR
1: Mormont have a connection? Are they friends, like, in a way? Through the yes, burb?
0: I mean, through the burb.
1: It, or maybe J.R. Mormont has a connection with the burb, and the burb wants to stay there. And Bloodraven's like, I can't fight this bird brain that much.
0: Also, it gives him a view at what the hell the Night's Watch is doing. True,
1: true. They're close, J.R. and this bird. Earlier, <laughs> John had remarked on how Thor and Smallwood looked a lord in Jeremy Riker's nice clothing.
0: Craster's sheepskin jerkin and cloak of sewn skins made a shabby contrast, but around one thick wrist was a heavy ring that had the glint of gold. He looked to be a powerful man, though well into the winter of his days now, his mane of gray hair going to white. A flat nose and a drooping mouth gave him a cruel look, and one of his ears was missing. So this is a wildling, John remembered old Nan's tales of the savage folk who drank blood from human skulls. Craster seemed to be drinking from a thin yellow beer from a chipped stone cup. Perhaps he had not heard the stories.
1: I just really liked this passage and wanted to call it out because this is, in many ways, John's first time ever encountering a wildling. So someone from that other culture. And for him, the first thing he notices is, wait. This doesn't match up with the stories that I was told of what wildlings are like. And it's, I think, the beginning of the veil being pulled off of Jon's eyes of learning to see the wildlings and the free folk for who they are.
0: I love that each of these kids is kind of getting that experience. Like, they're finally, oh, that's just what we were taught in Winterfell. Sansa, oh, that's what Dane taught me. Arya, oh, I can do this. I can go here. Oh, this is horrible. They're all getting these doses of reality and being pulled out of that uh, sheltered little kid mode.
1: They ask Craster some questions about Benjen, and Craster's like, I haven't seen Benjen in three years. Though he actually should have, based on where Benjen would have gone first to search for Waymar. Craster, though, remembers Waymar, Garrett, and Will, and says that Waymar was actually too proud to sleep under his roof, which I think is interesting. I wonder what Waymar was too proud to sleep under his roof for. Was Waymar too proud to sleep under his roof because of how shitty the place was, or was he, because in some ways we see similarities between Waymar and John, as Joe Magician points out, was Waymar too proud to sleep under Craster's roof seeing what a terrible person Craster was, and didn't want to accept his guest right in the way that John won't later.
0: Yeah, it's a complete inverse from Catelyn urging Rob to accept that guest, right? And it's kind of an insult back, probably that you know, John Waymar, likely Benjen. Even nope, I'm good. Don't want to. Don't want to do that. It's possible and that Benjen. Did. It is very much the Stark way.
1: Yeah. So I, it's just a
0: question that I have of what that what was meant by being too proud. Yeah. It's a good question. Honestly, it's a it's a kind of a phrase I think George wants us to interpret. This can be added to my list of questions I want to ask George one day that no one
1: else wants me to ask because there are probably more important things to ask.
0: Yep, that'd kill you.
1: <laughs> you if I wasted it on that. George, tell me about the hours of the day. George, tell me, why didn't Waymar
0: sleep at Craster's place? You know it would end up being something like, George, do you want to hear me freestyle rap as Lil Pigeon? <laughs> and he'd be like, No, but yes. (laughs) Craster makes requests to the Night's Watch. He asks them for wine and a new axe. And Mormont counters with an escort detail to the wall. Craster refuses and he says, We're free folk here. Craster serves no man.
1: After Craster says this, some of the men are like, uh, are you sure? The cold winds are rising. And he's like, let them rise. My roots are sunk deep. Craster grabbed a passing woman by the wrist. Tell him, wife. Tell him the Lord Crow how well content
0: we are. The woman licked at thin lips. This is our place. Craster keeps us safe. Better to die free than live a slave. Slave, muttered the raven. The question of
1: freedom then starts to emerge in the story. It hasn't really come to the forefront yet, but it's kind of been simmering there in the background with, like, how Danny's story goes in A Game of Thrones, and, of course, with our introduction to the Whites and them being maybe controlled. But the Raven repeating it here and the irony of Craster's wife, of all people, being like, yeah, it's better to die free than live a slave, um...
0: It, That's why I tried to make it sound as culty as possible.
1: Yeah, it, she licks her lips because she's hesitating and and trying to remember what she's supposed to say that won't get her hurt. And Crosser seems to see himself like he's free, right, in a way. But it becomes evident that like his daughter wives very much aren't. He's the only one who gets to be some semblance of free in this whole situation. But like as you were saying earlier, Chloe, like he has this arrangement with the others and if he's then bound to give his sons and he has to give all of his sheep that he depends on to live to these cruel old gods well what
0: what really is free are you that free craster and moreover than that what happens when the devil goes back on his deal Uh huh. i mean it's pretty apparent that they can't be popping out sons fast enough to really make the others care or matter what happens when your god turns away from you and casts you down? Do you really think they won't come for his whole entire family at some point?
1: What happens when they get bored of him? Because you see the way that they react to Waymar. They laugh at him. They just see the people as insects. Like, I I don't think that they're necessarily dependent on Craster. I think they see Craster as
0: their plaything. I don't think he's safe. Yeah, they, they're they just like, what can we get this guy to do? Yeah. Mormont tells Craster of the empty wilding villages and what's happening with the whites at Castle Black. We've had no such troubles here,
1: and I'll thank you not to tell such evil tales under my roof. I'm a godly man, and the gods keep me safe. If whites come walking, I'll know how to send them back to their graves. Though, I could use me a new, Though, I could use me a sharp new axe.
0: You know- it really makes me think about how I think Craster's just very afraid.
1: Yes. He absolutely is afraid. Does he refuse the escort guard to Castle Black because he's afraid? I would imagine. I mean, wouldn't you want to die at home? That's true. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly his home. It's the only home I guess a lot of these women have known. Better for yeah. worse. Mostly for worse. But... Mormont then ventures to ask, how will Craster deal with Mance Raider, who is now the king beyond the wall? Because turns out all of these empty villages are actually Mance Raider's doing. He's the one sending for all of these people in these villages to join him. Craster's like, whatever. That's why all these villages are empty. And Then he says that, I guess Mormont and the Watch want to stay here under my roof, but I don't actually have enough food for all of you. But that's fine, because the Watch has brought some, and... They may enjoy some of Craster's hospitality and his fire, but no one can touch his wives. Per John's suggestion, they send for Sam when Craster says, I can help you with a map. And then John also is sent to go get an axe to gift Craster. But as John comes forward, Craster notes that John has
0: the look of a Stark. That's the quote. There's lots of interesting lore and ideas hidden in this. Really, we urge you to read The Killing of a Ranger by Joe Magician, who he had on last book in A Game of Thrones for John. Uh, basically, the too-long don't-read of it is Waymar looks like a Stark. Uh, Craster just said so. The others took this info, put him through kind of a test of his sword play, his abilities, and what kind of sword he owned. He loses the duel. He doesn't have Dragonsteel. He's murdered on the spot by the Others, and they retreat after killing only one of his companions, leaving someone behind to go tell the tale. This idea behind the Others seeking out Stark-like characters has a lot of implications to the story, but there's also kind of a softer analysis that John has that outer look of a Stark here, but the insolent looks that he's throwing at Caster are likely very Stark-like as well, right? They're very Mm -hmm. judgmental. Eddard would frown upon this, Benjamin probably frowned upon this, and John obviously frowns upon all of this.
1: I like that that Craster sees the disgust and the stain in John's face. He's not great at hiding it. Which, not at all. Which, you know, can be, I guess, a disadvantage when it comes to politicking, and he learns to hide his emotions better later on, but it's to John's credit that he wears his heart on his sleeve in a lot of ways. John then goes off to join. Dolor's Ed to ask for the axe,
0: and Ed again distrusts Craster. Do you know the difference between a wildling who's a friend of the Watch and one who's not? Asked the dower squire. Our enemies leave our bodies for the crows and the wolves. Our friends bury us in secret graves. I wonder how long that bear's been nailed up on that gate, and what Craster had there before we came hellu Yup.
1: Yeah, I, I do think this is an interesting quote for a number of reasons, because A- it's funny that Dolor's Ed goes, you know, your enemies are just going to be open about it and your quote-unquote friends are going to hide their evil deeds. But Dolor's Ed, he's he's a man of the Night's Watch, right? And they've been taught that wildlings are the enemy. And so for him, there's no such thing as a wildling that's a friend to the Watch. Whereas Jon learns differently as he becomes a part of that free folk culture. Yes, And this is just the start of that part of Jon's journey. Anyways. John walks away to go feed the horses, and he hears a girl crying about a wolf. And obviously, this is John's wolf, okay? <laughs> because he's <laughs> the wolf. And so he goes there to check it out and to, like, calm scroll down. And the wolf has a rabbit in his mouth. The <laughs> girl that John encounters is about 15 or 16, and she's pregnant. She's one of daughter, Craster's daughters, and she says, now his wife. And she's kind of bummed because she was going to breed these rabbits because there weren't any more sheep
0: because they're running
1: out of food and winter's here yeah thanks a lot ghost and john (laughs) john promises to pay them back though he's not sure how he's like we'll pay you back and then some other members of the watch make fun of john for being a bastard and and lord and saying that he's a brother to kings when suddenly
0: this girl remembers she's not supposed to speak with any of them okay john We'll pay you back for it. How? Who's going to pay for it, John? No one's got money, and it doesn't matter north of the wall. Your money doesn't work here.
1: They give they give Craster a crossbow, which is apparently worth more. I don't know if it's in reaction to John, but they were just like, it's fine. This crossbow is like a bazillion rabbits. Right.
0: right. <laughs> Chat is being super insufferable after making fun of John, and he blames John for the loss of his cushy position next to Eamon, and he says John wouldn't be so brave without Ghost, and Lark is making fun of him as well, but John refuses to fight his brothers. He doesn't take the bait and he walks away. He's got other things to do and other things on his mind. He does. Okay.
1: He finds Sam to go send Sam to Mormon. There's a lot of just people being sent to other people to send them in these chapters. But Sam's feet are like wet because he jumped into a puddle. That he thought was land. <laughs> John's like, let's shame. John's like, let's go dry your shoes and your socks. And then eat this rabbit. And some of the other brothers, uh, actually including Ghost, are very envious of this rabbit. But John's like, Ghost, you already fucking ate. You <laughs> greedy pupper. <laughs>
0: Uh, they, they start to talk about how there are no men, and it's a wonder Craster can hold the place. Again, you know, they're trying to tell you something's awry here. Yes. <laughs> like, who's protecting this place? Why is this happening? Uh-huh. John falls asleep, and he wakes up cold, and he's wet, and he's achy, and we get this beautiful passage about nature. He crept beneath it and stood up in a forest turned crystal. The pale pink light of dawn sparkled on branch and leaf and stone. Every blade of grass was carved from emerald. Every drip of water turned to diamond. Flowers and mushrooms alike wore coats of glass. Even the mud puddles had a bright brown sheen. Through the shimmering greenery, the black tents of his brothers were encased in a fine glaze of ice. So there's magic beyond the wall after all. He found himself thinking of his sisters, perhaps because he dreamed of them last night. Sansa would call this an enchantment, and tears would fill her eyes at the wonder of it, but Arya would run out laughing and shouting, wanting to touch it all. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm. Yeah, some of George George's best imagery and descriptions of nature are in these John chapters. Like, Beyond the Wall might be haunted and desolate and, like, shitty, a lot of the time, but that doesn't make it any less beautiful, as you can see from scenes like this. It's just it's just a really standout passage. And there's definitely something in there about finding all of this magic in the mundane as opposed to in these like horrible rituals, right? as John is doing now. And I also just like this moment of John remembering his sisters. like of course, Sansa might be one of my favorite characters, but I would totally be more like Arya be going out and trying to touch all the
0: things. But it's very much you, and I would be the Sansa of us too because I would just be standing there, like, wow, it's so beautiful. And I'd get all teary eyed, and I'd just look around and I'd just have a little, oh, happy face on. And you'd just be out there wrecking shit. I wouldn't be wrecking it. I would be touching it. And maybe it yeah, would wreck okay. a little. Uh, there's A, a
1: little? <laughs> just because, like, the heat from my fingers. There's a story, apparently, of me as a child. And I guess maybe I've never killed the girl and let the one be born. I don't know. Or, I, I don't know, my mother got chastised in the bakery because I was, like, poking the breads because they were squishy. That's that sounds it. like you. Yep.
0: Yeah, that's me. Sounds great. So. <sighs> so the girl that was scared by ghosts shows up and she's... Wearing Sam's cloak, John's like, "What the fuck?" He's just like, "What are you
1: doing?"
0: We're not (laughs) supposed to do this, Sam. There's a meme Gordon Ramsay has bread over someone's ears, and it just says, "Like, what are you, an idiot sandwich?"
1: (laughs) That's what John wants to do to Sam right now when he sees that club. All
0: the time. That's what he wants. I love my idiot children.
1: Yeah, that's true. What are you doing?
0: (laughs) Anyway, she comes up in Sam's cloak. She says that the fat one said John would be here and asks if he's brother to a king. Apparently, Sam gave her the cloak so no one would say the girl didn't belong. I don't know what that means. Out hanging out with the boys, I guess? I, I guess. Is this like him giving his letterman jacket? Like, I'm confused. Yeah. The girl begins by saying kings are supposed to be just and protect the weak. And then she begs John to take her with him and offers to be his wife. And John's like, um, that's literally the one thing I'm not allowed to do. Like, if you had to pick one thing I can't do, that's it. Like, that's <laughs> the one right there. And she begs him to take her with him. And he was like, I, I can't. Do- I- I guest right. Like, I'm here as a guest. I'm your guest here. And Gilly says you're technically not breaking guest right if you didn't eat at Craster's board nor sleep by Craster's fire. Gilly, he called me for Gillyflower. That's pretty. He remembered Sansa telling him once that he should say that whenever a lady told him her name. He could not help the girl, but perhaps the courtesy would please her. Is it Craster who frightens you, Gilly? For the baby, not
1: for me. If it's a girl that's not so bad, she'll grow a few years and he'll marry her. But Nellis says it's to be a boy, and she's had six and knows these things. He gives the boys to the gods. Come the white cold, he does, and of late it comes more often. That's why he started giving them sheep, even though he has a taste for mutton. Only now the sheep's gone too. Next it will be the dogs till... She lowered her eyes and stroked her belly.
0: What gods? John was remembering that they'd seen no boys in Craster's keep nor men either, save Craster himself. The cold gods, she said, the ones in the night, the white shadows. And suddenly John was back in the Lord Commander's tower again. A severed hand was climbing his calf, and when he pried it off with the point of his longsword, it lay writhing, fingers opening and closing. The dead man rose to his feet, blue eyes shining in that gashed and swollen face. Ropes of torn flesh hung from the great wound in his belly, yet there was no blood. What color are the eyes? he asked her. Blue. As bright as blue stars, and as cold. She has seen them, he thought. Craster lied.
1: First, Gilly introducing herself, reminding John of Sansa, and that's what gives him the idea, to use courtesy to appease to Gilly. Uh, I just thought that was a fun connection, but the courtesy isn't enough to appease her because it's, it's all starting to come together for John. Like why there are no men or boys, like the earlier parts of the chapter kind of slowly built toward the horror of Craster's sacrifices and why he doesn't fear the whites. But, I think that the horror isn't in the undead or the zombies, it's in Crasser's actions like, he's been lying to them the whole time, and he does all this terrible shit like, it's all colliding here in this interaction with Gilly as John pieces together and has to confront that Crasser's just raping these women and his own daughters and sacrificing slash killing all of his sons so that he gets to live like a king in his own little castle his shitty little castle
0: <sighs> yeah like, this is the power he's trying to keep. Yeah. That's what's so sad is this is it. This is what he's trying to keep power-wise so that he doesn't have to kneel to any other king and just, ugh, it's gross. And when, it's gross. I wonder if that's why it's called, I, I'm not joking, actually, when I say this Craster's
1: Keep, if it's like playing on that idea that he's just trying to keep all of this, I don't know, for himself or whatever. I could see that. I don't know. I I'm see thinking it. too deep. Just like I'm gonna yeah, it's not that deep. God, hell, yeah. I'm going think too deep on this other thing too. Uh, first of all, the severed hand climbing his calf, like that's terrible foreplay for John, I'm sure. <laughs> um, hey, you like what you like. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um And then the fingers opening and closing, Uh it's just like John opening and closing oh,
0: his hands. Yes, yes. the that's dead perfect. hand and
1: his his own hand trying to keep it alive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It That that hand drives a lot of his hand thought i bet
1: Mm. he's like imitating it in his i don't know every time he thinks about it and why his hands burned and why he needs it to be a hand hand like Gilly then asked john to take her when they come through this way again
0: no he could hear the defeat in her voice sorry to be of trouble my lord i only they said the king keeps people safe and i thought despairing she ran Sam's cloak flapping behind her like great black wings. John watched her go, his joy in the morning's brittle beauty gone. Damn her, he thought resentfully, and damn Sam twice for sending her to me. What did he think I could do for her? We're here to fight wildlings, not save them. God damn it,
1: Sam. When Gilly first brings it up, I don't know if she's trying to appeal to John's values at first When she's like, I hear this is what kings should do. Um, I don't know if that's intentional on her part, but if it is, it's a very smart choice. And also, I'm just always going to say that
0: Gilly is a tough, smart cookie. Yeah, she is. We get a lot of really great secondary and like tertiary northern female characters and i really appreciate that not only is she a tough smart cookie but i would say it's likely intentional on george's part as well especially that line they said the king keeps people safe Mm -hmm. because knowing what we know of john and what's probably in his future is he is going to have some sort of claim as rob's successor via the will Mm-hmm. If the TV show that is originally written and these books were based off of has anything to say about it, then John will be king in the North. He becomes a great leader to the Free Folk and unites them with the people of the North. And, I don't know, it's just entirely possible George is intentionally saying that, just like in A Game of Thrones, you know, king's under the snow, Ned. Snow! Snow, snow Ned.
1: Yes, I mean, I think that's definitely all these things that are at play, and they're nudging you about, like, "Hey, John, not just brother to kings, by yeah. the way." Ha ha ha
0: ha 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 ha
1: ha Brother to kings,
0: <laughs> kings, kings, kings. Ned, no, okay.
1: <laughs> Later on, the other men wake up and they joke about bears and wildlings. And then, as John goes to find Mormont, Jarman Buckwell tells John to keep his sword sharp. Mormon asks if John has had any breakfast, um, if he's had any of Craster's fare, but suddenly John decides truly, really, I'm not going to eat any of Craster's food. And we discussed this earlier. You know, Gilly reminding him of the technicalities of Guest Right gives John kind of an out, even though he's not there when the Night's Watch mutiny occurs and thus isn't there to be part of the people breaking Guest Right. Um, but in John choosing that, he's leaving his options open. He's choosing to keep himself free. Uh, in that aspect, but also showing that he has those morals and values that he won't accept that hospitality from Craster. My
0: favorite part is the raven <laughs> pooping on Mormont's shoulder that happens uh, after that. It's the best. Uh, I mean,
1: Jared love hates this bird. They are friends. We've We've kind of talked about it already. It's so cute. Yeah. I don't know. I just love that
0: the bird poops on his shoulder. Yeah, I I really wonder how much of that is Bloodraven doing that. Just saying.
1: Yeah, but also part of it is like, I mean, the bird's got to go somewhere.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Sam is getting his cloak back from Gilly, and he approaches John saying, I thought you would help her. And (laughs) Sam, of course, wanted to help Gilly because she was afraid, and he knows how that feels. And he promised they'd take her out take her on the way back home so like he straight up put that in her mind and it's like when you tell your friend like oh yeah my friend's gonna say no but like we'll do it afterwards like i'll make it happen don't worry about it john's like what but we learned sam does have that little manipulative streak right yeah he knows a little bit of southern politics and he brings that to the court
1: yeah, I mean, there's there's quite a bit of politicking in this chapter, like when Mormont tries to uh, haggle with Craster earlier. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I like that you're bringing that Sam just does it. And I mean, he does it throughout all of these, but I just think it's hilarious. It
0: shouldn't be hilarious, but John's just like what? Yeah, uh, yeah. Despite Sam breaking those rules, though, John's the one who feels ashamed, and there's a lot of like variations of the shame that he's feeling. He's feeling shame at the child's stain, right? Gilly's bastard's shame, his own stain of bastardry. And not just at the child, but at the way the child's been created, the way that Craster is acting in creating abominations and, you know, impregnating these girls and then them having further abominations. And you look at places like Dorne where bastards are celebrated. That's an exception to the rule. John's the rule. He's the accident. He was not meant to be in his mind. To John, someone purposefully creating these bastard children, it-, it causes him this immense feeling of shame. And it's just all these themes that come up in this chapter from being a bastard to being a changeling child, right? A taken child, a stolen child, like Bale the Bard, Jon Snow, Little Monster, Gilly's son, you know, mm-hmm. Aemon Steel song. What do you think about Craster
1: though telling John at the beginning, he's like, Hmm, you're a bastard, but that's why
0: I take to wife every woman that I bed, so that none of them will be
1: bastards.
0: And then there's just John in the marriage club, he's like, Val, egret. <laughs> I want all of you as my wives. But none of we'll Are you saying that Craster course. is Aegon Targaryen? Come again? Wow. I mean, yes, clearly. Oh my god.
1: Uh Anyway, um, but yeah, like, none of them, he doesn't show any of them love. They are abominations and not meant to be. And it's, there's... They're vessels for his seed. Oh, gross. Thanks. And just as John recognizes, um... That abomination or that bastardy, he's also recognizing shame in his own inaction. He doesn't voice it quite yet, but like Sam is acting pretty foolish, but John kind of recognizes that Sam is showing more bravery in wanting to save Gilly and in trying to do that than any of the other brothers. Especially as we learn in a bit that they've actually all known the horrors of Craster's Keep, and Sam's the only one trying to do something to change it for even one person.
0: Yeah, a very small man can cast a very large shadow. Yes. And a round one. Aw. Sounds. As they leave Craster's keep, Jon speaks with Jaor about how Craster has no sons and no sheep. He shares a story he heard of wildlings that birthed half-human children to the others. The ravens quark yes when Jon says Craster gives his sons to the wood. Thanks, Bran and Bloodraven, <laughs> by the way. Thanks for the uh, the thumbs up. Yes, you, you did it, John. You, you, <laughs> you cracked the case. You
1: figured it out. You cracked the corn case. Corn. <laughs> Detective John
0: Pikachu. Oh my god, JP. <laughs> so halfway through his little story to Mormont, he realizes, of course Mormont knows. All the rangers knew. My uncle knew. He would recruit the boys, but Craster serves crueler gods and different prayers, is what Jaor says. And John thinks his wives must offer different prayers.
1: Yes, and I think that's what's so cruel about the decision that JR and the other Knights Watchmen make compared to what Sam does. Like, they decide to honor Craster's prayers over the ones of the women there. Like, why do they get to decide which gods hold power and which don't in that sense? Like, whose prayers get answered, especially because George says he's not going to confirm the existence of gods in his universe whether or not they exist, we don't know if they do or if it's the power and magic that we see is just the in the guise of religion. And in that sense, it means that power comes from people, right? People get to be their own gods. The old gods are in many ways just, just those humans. And the Night's Watch has decided that Craster's gods are more important than the wives and their prayers. Anyway, Mormon's just like, too bad, John. The wide world is full of people wanting help, John. Would that some could find the courage to help themselves. Craster sprawls in his loft, even now, stinking of wine and lost a sense. On his board below lies a sharp new axe. it me, I'd name it Answered Prayer and Make an End.
0: Yes, John thought of Gilly. She and her sisters. They were nineteen and Craster was one, but...
1: It would be an ill day for us if Craster died. Your uncle could tell you of the times Craster's keep made the difference between life and death for our rangers.
0: My father, he hesitated. Go on, John, say what you would say. My father once told me that some men are not worth having, John finished. A bannerman who is brutal or unjust dishonors his liege lord as well as himself. Craster is his own man.
1: He has sworn us no vows, nor is he subject to our laws. Your heart is noble, John, but learn a lesson here. We cannot set the world to rights. That is not our purpose. The Night's Watch has other wars
0: to fight. Other wolves. Yes, I must remember that. There's this harsh reality Catiline learns when she gets the twins, which Eliana has been drilling into my brain the last month of Game of Thrones and in our prophecies episode. Nothing's for free. There's always a cost. And at what point is that cost too high? John looks around at all of these young and old women and the monster and corruption that has birthed them and then gets this total defeat from the adults that he trusted. All of them, they knew the entire time that this horrible thing was happening and they just let it happen to these girls And the Stark side of him is obviously pulling him, right? The Ned side knows this is wrong and that his Lord Father would do what was right no matter what. But he has the Mormont Valyrian sword strapped across his back and he does not have ice strapped across his back. His Night's Watch dad just said it best. Learn a lesson. That's not the purpose of the Night's Watch.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's that price that must be paid in multiple ways of looking at it, and the story's always asking the characters that, and the reader, like, where is the line? Do you draw it here? Do you draw it here? And why do you draw it there? And it poses it in different ways. The answer isn't clear, and I don't think the story ever intends to answer it, but as Mormont says, we have (laughs) other boars! Uh, uh. I, I see you, George. see you but throughout this chapter john is of course reckoning with his first true encounter with wildlings through craster gonna throw it out there craster is very much out there when it comes to wildlings he's like very very off the beaten path not all of them hashtag not all wildlings you know he's watched so much nascar i know like he hashtag not all wildlings when you see craster is all i'm saying John. But, like, as John learns to set aside his disgust for him, however deserved, because as he learns throughout his chapters, like, the Night's Watch also needs every person that it can get to fight for the side of the living when these other wars come. And, like, this is the argument that he tries to show the rest of the Night's Watch in those later chapters, especially in Dance, especially when. John comes to see the Free Folk as a people with many diverse cultures, not just Crasters, um, who are all as human and necessary as he.
0: Yeah. Mormont explains Mance Rayder is gathering an army in the Frostfangs, which is why all the villages are empty. They had similar information from Dennis Malister, but now there's a where from Craster. John asks if Raider is making a city or an army. Mormont says that's the question, and that they must know how many men of fighting age there are. Based on the geography of the Frostfangs and the level of it being hospitable, that can only mean Mance is going to strike south. And John shares that wildlings have invaded before. There's Raymond Redbeard, there's Bale the Bard, Horned Lord, uh, Gendal and Gorn, the brother kings, right? Just putting that out there.
1: Yeah, ooh, the brother kings, interesting.
0: Uh Joramin, who blew the horn of winter and woke giants from earth. The Night's Watch stopped them all, and if they failed, Winterfell stopped them after that. But the watch isn't what it once was. All of the strength kind of has been broken, especially down at Winterfall with its lord dead and the king south.
1: Yeah, the wall uh, as we see ends up being strong enough to hold off the wildlings um in the next book. Is it because there's a Stark there? I don't know. Tinfoiling. But mm-hmm. Mormont said still rings true with the threat of these other wars. I'm never gonna let it go. The wall's oh not God. gonna be enough. Winterfell is also still weekend, And I don't know that it it all wraps up at Winterfell. Like, in the show. No,
0: it, it, it could, could all, I think it should go south. I don't know. It, I think it's gotta get real bad before it gets good. Mormont says that they need to find Mance. They need to fight him, and they need to stop him. 300, thought John, against the fury of the wild. His fingers opened and closed. That's a way to close a chapter. Yeah. That's just a... I love it. I love it. It's a great... It's just a great rhythm. It's like when you play guitar, a lot of songs, if you finger pick songs, it will have a lower note, like your lower E, for example, that you just like pick rhythmically in the background and it keeps the rhythm of the story and for john that's his open close open close
1: yes i love that especially because it's a song of ice and fire
0: that's john two and three wow two chapters yeah i'm really excited to be back at it with you yeah in the books
1: (laughs) in the books and to dive deep especially as john's chapters start ramping up here
0: yeah, they're about to get very chunky. So uh, chunky. as we get into them, yes, chunky. Oh my chonky god, chapters. As we get into these chapters, I'm sure we will break them apart when necessary. Yes,
1: all of you can keep track when those chapters and those episodes come out. Be sure to subscribe to us on on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, on ACast, Stitcher, or on Podbean. Uh, we're gonna flag that. We don't know what's going to happen yet, and we will, of course, let you all know where you can find us. We hear that Apple might be retiring iTunes, and so when we figure out what podcast uh, platform, if they're going to even still have one, and how that's going to work, um, they come out with in the future, of course, we'll let
0: you know, and we'll try and be on there, but I think it'll be a quick transition, however it goes. So you guys will hear about it for sure. Yeah. You listen to podcasts, you're probably keeping up with this shit. Yeah. And you can also chat with us on social media. Check us out on Twitter, at Girls Gone Canon. Or if you have some time and you want to drop us a message and say hello, feel free to send an email to us at girlsgonecannon at gmail.com. Or art. Or fan art, especially fan art. Eliana yeah. wants the fan art. Yeah,
1: we had one from Lady Mary. We also got um, a while ago uh, a fan art from Emily.
0: Yeah, so I was great to say,
1: Miss Emily. I love yes. Emily. Yes,
0: that so one fun. was fun.
1: That was our, I think, the first fan art we ever received. That was that was really yeah. great. She makes main memes too. Like <laughs> she does. We also have a Patreon, and we have several different tiers. Everyone who has $5 and up, though, gets our special episodes. We just released one uh, talking about Prophecy, Prophets, and Seers, inspired by our chat with Quinn of Ideas and Ice and Fire on Melisandre. So
0: you can catch that episode on Prophecy over on our Patreon. Yeah, Check that out on our Patreon. And we are looking to start our next stretch goal. You guys got us to our last one. We did a really fun live stream. It was a blast. And we want to keep that tradition of live streams up. We will be coming up with something soon enough for a live stream. However, our next stretch goal. I'm so excited about this. Our next stretch goal is once we hit $2,000 a month, (laughs) we are going to get together and Cook some recipes from the A Feast of Ice and Fire companion book, the semi-official Game of Thrones cookbook. If you haven't checked it out, it is by the creators over at In It Look Crossroads and highly recommend it. I've been making recipes for it, but Eliana and I love cooking and we want to do a fun live stream event with you guys. So we're going to do a Feast for Feast and we are going to make some foods and talk about the best book ever, A Feast for Crows yes
1: i we're very excited please help us make our dreams come true
0: <laughs> it's probably gonna yeah. be a while and we'll yeah. definitely do some live streams in between that time however i don't know we just want to cook and have fun so. yeah
1: it'll be like the food network or rachel ray or imagine us being like oh, man i wish i was gonna say like chrissy teigen actually her name's yeah. pronounced like tygen she's my hero chrissy
0: Teigen. come on our podcast yes. oh
1: my god i would be so excited she's my hero <laughs> She's so funny and great and cooks and... Oh anyway. <laughs> if you got a sewer stretchable, we're gonna get Chrissy... No, we're not. That'd be amazing. Anyways.
0: <gasps> what if we did?
1: What if we did? Chrissy
0: Tigan. Come on, our podcast. La co sponsor us. <laughs> La co sponsor us. As always, I have been one of your hosts. You know me as Chloe. Catch me on the internet as Liza Arbor or Liza Arbor Gold,
1: and I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana, also known as Glass Table Girl. Goodbye, bye.